BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hi, everyone. Welcome to Dishing with Digest. I'm Stephanie Sloan, Editorial Director, here with Mara Levinsky, Executive Editor. Hi, everyone. Well, Mara, it is a big week for The Young and the Restless, which will mark its 50th anniversary on March 26th. So I first started watching YNR in the mid-80s. I was in high school and was completely drawn in by Cricket as a model because she was also a teenager, and I totally related to her storyline. And when she got together with Danny, I was completely hooked, but I also vividly remember being sucked in by the story of Sean holding Lauren captive and loving the character of Catherine Chancellor, among others. Now, because of the time it was on, I only caught it during the summer and school breaks, but I was able to keep up with it by reading What Else? Soap Opera Digest. So by the time I got to college, two of my closest friends there, Jackie and Allison, were very team YNR, so that was a big bonding moment for us. And I always tell the story of how the local CBS would get the magazine early and whoever got to it first would like hide the other copies so they could have all the juicy tidbits you must know as our news section trumpeted back then. So sorry to the owners back in the late 80s for hiding those copies, but you know, we couldn't help ourselves. Well, I started watching YNR when I was in junior high and I definitely remember the exact story that sucked me in, which was the Paul Cassandra romance, which was wrapped up in the mystery of who killed George Rawlings, Cassandra's husband. I was so upset when Cassandra was killed off, but I clearly got over it because I never stopped watching. I loved Danny and Cricket as well. And I think I still have their Hawaii wedding from 1990 on a VCR cassette somewhere. Yeah, you did. And I remember getting so invested in the uh, Kay and Marge switch. And then uh, a few years down the line, Neil and Drusilla. YNR was one of the last soaps that I started watching. I say that as someone who, as a teenager, somehow was keeping up with every show on every network, also largely thanks to Soap Opera Digest. But I loved how opulent it was. Like the sets felt so glamorous. The clothes felt so glamorous. Even the signature camera work on the show felt glamorous. YNR is a little bit older than me, so it wasn't possible for me to watch it from day one. But when I look back on how long I have watched, I just feel lucky to have seen the whole Genoacity journeys of people like Joshua Morrow and Sharon Case and Michelle Stafford and Brighton James, that over decades, I've gotten to see them go from newbies to veterans. You know, that is such a good point. And also, you are so right. Uh, YNR has always given off a more luxurious vibe, you know, even back in the day, like as compared to, let's say, As the World Turns or One Life to Live. Mm-hmm. You know, there's always been a very distinct feel to YNR that still carries through to this day. And, you know, I will also say that behind the scenes, it felt the same way. You know, the show's co-creators, William J. Bell and Lee Philip Bell would host a yearly luncheon in New York around Emmy time. And it was held for years at the Rainbow Room at the top of Rockefeller Center. 
And when I scored my first invite, let's just say it was a pretty big deal. I mean, we still talk about those lunches yeah. this day. Now, our new issue is devoted to the number one shows, starting with an interview with executive producer, head writer Josh Griffith about penning the on-screen celebration of the 50th, which will be in the form of Genoa City's Bicentennial. So Nikki and co have been planning a ball where we can definitely expect fireworks to play out. Josh also previews his plans for the future, so it's definitely a must read. Well, this is also an exciting day for us staff because this is the day that hitting newsstands is a full-sized special commemorative collector's edition of Soap Opera Digest entirely devoted to all things YNR. It is jam-packed with interviews, vintage photos, salutes to the show's love stories, a comprehensive storyline timeline. And I think you would probably agree with me that working on it, it was hard not to fall in love with YNR all over again and to feel such reverence for its absolutely incredible 50-year history. Oh, I couldn't agree more. I mean, just even the interviews that I got to do from, you know, Michael Damien to Jamie Lynn Bauer, like you just ran the gamut of juicy, fabulous stories. And it yeah. was a labor of love for us. And I really believe that every YNR fan will want to get their hands on it. So check it out. It is on newsstands now. Well, I'm a pretty nostalgic person, particularly when it comes to soaps. And I know YNR is really going to lean into the nostalgia factor next week. So I'm very excited for these anniversary shows. I absolutely love it when a bunch of vets come back for a milestone and the show has assembled a pretty great cross-section of fan faves to visit for this anniversary, including Barbara Crampton as Liana, who we had on the podcast a few weeks ago, and Patty Weaver, who we'll be talking to today. So let's check in with her and catch up about her soap experience and why in our return. Hi, Patty. How are you? It's good, good to see you. Good, how are you? You too. Very good. We're getting ready for a big downpour of rain. Yes, uh, I hear Los Angeles has been deluged. This, uh... well, You know, I really like it because it gives you a chance to kind of uh, get all cuddly at home and then use your mind and start thinking or maybe binge watching TV programs. <laughs> <laughs> Perfect time to do it. Well, we're thrilled that you're coming back for the YNR 50th. So uh, we're going to have a little chat here and get some of your memories uh, on record. So <laughs> let's start. You were born in West Virginia and moved around a lot as a child. But from an early age, you had dreams of becoming a singer and a performer. So how did you discover your musical talent? Uh, my father was um, a holy roller minister and uh, we would go and have these evangelistic meetings. And uh, for some reason, he asked me to get up and sing in church. And I sang this song, Amazing Grace. And I remember this, my first memory of being an entertainer, that people enjoyed, their faces enjoyed hearing the music, the song. I thought, well, that's interesting. <laughs> <laughs> And then it took off from there. I I loved singing. I loved uh, being able to give that to people. Well, as you just said, your father was a minister, but as we understand it, you wanted to sing rock and roll. So were there clashes over such things? No, they were all for it. They were all for it. No problems like that. My brother had a rock group and um, in the 60s. It's a long time ago. And... Uh, uh, he asked me if I would sing in the group with him. And I said, okay. And we started singing together and playing. And we'd go all over the tri-state area of 
of Indiana, Ohio, Kentucky, all of those areas. And then we branched out and um, eventually Atlantic Records heard about us because we used to open for a lot of group in the, in the 60s, Crosby, Sills, Nash & Young, uh, Simon & Garfunkel, people like that. And that's how we were heard. Uh, so they asked us to sing, um, come in and do an album. That's crazy. I know. <laughs> well, um, you made a very bold move at the age of 17 to move to California to pursue a career in music. I believe your brother went with you. Um, was it challenging to acclimate to Los Angeles? It wasn't the acclimating uh, to Los Angeles. It was the acclimation of, I came from a, a big family, a family of nine. And we left the family back in Ohio and my mother came with us and we traveled across the country in a car and we got here. And uh, I don't think we knew anything about the business. All we did in the 60s, if you had a garage band and you could go and play occasionally, that was a big deal. And all of a sudden we had this opportunity to uh, record for a major label. And in the 60s, that was the big thing. And I don't think any of us were ready for it. We were all very, very young. Um, some bad things happened. Some very bad things happened. Our drummer uh, was on drugs and killed himself. And and things got all discombobulated during that time. And um, we disbanded. And I ended up uh, shining shoes in Beverly Hills. <laughs> wow. I know. <laughs> you see, you never know from one minute to the next where your life's going to take you. Mm -hmm. And I have definitely been on the road a long time. <laughs> so, okay. You're shining shoes in Beverly Hills one minute. And then I don't think the next minute, but at some point early in, in your professional career journey, you wound up uh, working behind the scenes at a television station as an associate producer for Channel 9 in LA. Yes. So, how did we get from point A to point B? I needed to to make some money to live. Uh, um, and I we lived near KHJ Television. And for some reason, I said, I I'm going to go in there and see if they'll hire me. And I walked in and I told the receptionist, I, I really need a job. And who do I meet with? I had no idea what I was doing. And she said, well, I'll see if I what I can do for you. And she was lovely. So I sat there for about about eight hours. It was almost the end of the day. And this wonderful gentleman came out and he said, all right, come on back. I guess you've been here long enough. And I told him, I said, I would do anything. I would sweep the floors. I don't care. I just need a job. And I'm very good. I will be loyal to this company. And uh, I got hired as a gopher on um, the news show there. And then eventually uh, I got promoted up the ladder to be an associate producer on um, Tempo. Regis Philbin was the host. And I, that's how I got to know Regis. And I tell you, he was really, for me, he was one of the most lovely people and funny, genuinely funny guys that I'd ever met. So it was, I was lucky. And I stayed there for a long time. Wow. Amazing. Yeah. Well, can you share with us the remarkable story of how your job at the television channel brought you to the attention of Norman Lear? Well, this is so bizarre. Even I was thinking about this the other day because I got a residual check. 
<laughs> from all in the family, which was so bizarre. Um, I had a friend, a wonderful friend, very talented woman, Mary Kate Place. She's an actor. And uh, we, when we were younger, we used to hang out together at CBS in the rehearsal halls and we'd do all these little skits that she would write or I would write, blah, blah, blah. And we would have a great time. One day, Norman Lear, I guess, walked by this rehearsal hall and was standing in the background while we were doing this song called, If Communism Comes Knocking on Your Door, Don't Answer It. (laughs) 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 And at the end, he applauded. It freaked us out. And he said, you really made me laugh. I'm going to write a script for you two. And two weeks later, there was the script for All in the Family for us to come on. Wow. Uh, Tell me that. Is that crazy? Yes. And he was so wonderful. I mean, here we all were newbies. He had long stem roses waiting in our dressing rooms uh, for us to take that day. It was, it was, it was really a beautiful way to enter the business. Oh my goodness. Yes. So had you done any real acting before? I was an extra on a lot of things. Uh, but no, that was the first really big thing. And it was it was phenomenal being in the same room with uh, Gene Stapleton. And I mean, all of these fabulous actors, you know, and watching how they work. And what a great lesson for me. Amazing. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. You couldn't yes. get any bigger than that show at that yeah. time. Dallas Brothers, either. all of those people. It was great. Yeah. Amazing. Wow. So at that point, do you feel you made a conscious choice to pivot from pursuing music to pursuing acting, or did it just sort of happen? I think it just happened. You know, sometimes I think I'm a journeyman. Some people know exactly what they want to do from the time they're born. I didn't have that luxury. I was trying to make a living, get a job, take care of my family, you know, all of that. So I never really had the time to really focus on doing one thing. And I got lucky because I had a lot of things thrown my way or I walked into a lot of doors (laughs) that happened (laughs) to be open and I was able to keep them open. Yeah, yeah. All right, well, it was only, I think, a year after that fateful chance encounter with Norman Lear that you landed the role of Trish Clayton on Days of Our Lives. So tell us your Days of Our Lives (laughs) casting story. Okay, well, I was working at KHJ Television still, and um, somebody had saw me act in a class or something, said, you know, you got to get an agent. I said, how do you get an agent? I said, I I don't know. I'm going to, I'll figure it out. And someone called and said, there's an opening. They're going to be casting a part on Days of Our Lives, and you would be perfect for it. And I was like, okay. I couldn't figure out how to do it. So I did something that was so bad, but it turned out so good. (laughs) I got the uh, name of the producer of the show, and I typed up. I got these legal papers like you're being summoned. (laughs) And I, you're being summoned to see Patty Weaver at such and such a time. <laughs> and I had it presented to them. They thought they were being served papers. That's what it was. That is so and amazing. I, I had a very weird mind. 
That's all I can say. I love it. This, it actually worked. They called me laughing. Now they could have been very mad at me, but <laughs> I got the interview for the show. Um, I was scared out of my mind. I had never seen cue cards before. Wesley Yore, who was lead on the show, I was doing a, a, a screen test with him. And all of a sudden these big cue cards come right up in my face. And uh, you know, somehow I got the part. I, I, to this day, I, I don't know how I got the part. They I, liked me they, and they put me on the show within like a couple of weeks. Had you ever watched a soap? Did you know anything about daytime? No, knew nothing <laughs> about them. Other than I remember my mother and my grandmother, they lived and died by their soap operas. They would be talking about, you know, uh, uh, Laura Lee got, got pregnant by such and such. I had no idea who they were talking about. <laughs> and it was these characters on this show. So when I got on the show, like my grandmother would never take a call from me. She'd literally hang up on me if I called during the show. And she called me by my character's name. From that day on, she never called me by my name. Oh my gosh. Very that's, weird. That's committed. Yeah, very committed. And weird. <laughs> <laughs> we'll let you say that. <laughs> so what do you, what what do you remember about the actual experience of now you're on Days of Our Lives, thrown into this world. Were you quite nervous as a, as a newbie to the show? Yes, I was. You know, I was very, very nervous. And there was a wonderful um, director who's no longer with us, uh, Frank Patelli, <laughs> and uh, he said, "You know, you spend so much time worrying about screwing up that you screw up. So why don't you just step into it and just do it? And then if you screw up, you can worry about it then." It made so much sense to me, logical sense. Uh -huh. uh, so once he said that to me, and also Susan Flannery was very, very good about, yeah, don't worry about it. Don't worry. Um, I got over it. I got over it. And I, I developed a system for learning lines, which is half the battle, learning lines. Mm -hmm. And after that, I just, I felt honored and uh, privileged to be part of all of that. Susan and Bill Hayes um, just, to me, were icons. And one of the reasons I got to sing on Days of Our Lives was because of Bill Hayes. Once again, I was in a rehearsal hall, screwing around, <laughs> just being funny. And uh, he heard me sing. And he went to the producer of the show. And I guess within a week, he had uh, written in the script for me to sing. That's Betty Corday, Betty Corday, who was the owner of the show. And, and then from there, I got to sing regularly on the show. That's so great. So beautiful. Yeah, I love that. <laughs> Um, I mean, just to have both of your loves now, you know, like if you thought you had to leave music behind, it actually became part of what your new, you know, exactly. avenue was. Yeah, exactly. And one of the great things that I got to do from the singing was it wasn't so much about me singing the song. I'm a real believer in uh, every uh, song person, anybody who's singing a song. It's about the message that you deliver to the people who are listening. So every song that I did was really about the scene itself. 
and trying to evoke the emotion that they were going through. And it seemed to work in the show, it really did. Mm -hmm. So I got to really kind of um, take a, a scene from the script and really bring it to another level because of the music. That's uh -huh. great. Yeah. Now, you actually first worked with Tracy Bregman, who's YNR's Lauren, but on days she was Donna. So what do you remember about working with and knowing Tracy at the very start of her career? She was the cutest thing. <laughs> she was so cute. And she was a little spitfire. Man, this is a girl who knew exactly what she wanted to do from the get-go. She stood there. I, I was always amazed. And she was just like a little young girl but she knew exactly how to do the scene. It was an amazing thing to see. And uh, and plus that she loved laughing. So I, I, I think I could always make her laugh. So it was a pleasure to work with her. Well, you were on days for eight years, which was plenty of time for Trish to go through, you know, several lifetimes worth of soapy drama, including... Finding her biological father, killing her stepfather in self-defense. With the Proctor Silex iron. <laughs> yes, indeed. Splitting <laughs> into two personalities from the trauma, marrying David Banning, becoming mother to little Scotty, stealing a fortune in, in jewels, and ultimately leaving Salem to pursue a medical career. How's that for synthesizing it down to a bite-sized bit? But did you have a, a favorite storyline or relationship or like period in Trish's journey that was the most fun to play? When I was playing three different characters, it was fabulous because you get to switch from one character to the next. It was it was quite the experience. I love that. I was Trish, somebody else, and baby Lisa. Cynthia. So I got to play, I got to play this little this little tiny girl. It was great. It was really fun. Um, so besides the Hazes, you know, who did you connect with on the cast while you were there? Every, I mean, really everyone. It was, it, when you work on a soap, it almost becomes like a family. Or it, it was then, I'm, I'm not sure how it is right now, but it was then, it was like, you're part of this little world. And everybody tried to protect everybody, which I thought was a wonderful, wonderful thing. But I definitely um, uh, connected with Susan Flannery with Deidre Hall, um, with uh, Jed Allen, with Susan and Bill. I mean, they definitely had an if, and Wesley, you're of course. Mm -hmm. They had an effect on my life. They really did, for the good, yeah. for the good. Mm -hmm. We have a very important follow-up question about Susan Flannery. Did you call her flannels? No. <laughs> <laughs> All right. We, we've oh, no, heard I, I, some I, others, I, but I, they I, did. No. I, I I respected her too much. <laughs> she, was, she was the queen. <laughs> she was something else, though. She was a, a a strong force. There's another person who knew exactly what she wanted, mm -hmm. and but her, she had kindness in her heart that she showed to me. I I've been uh, the recipient of a lot of love, which I'm so grateful for. At my at my age now, you know. <laughs> well, we've known you for all of thirty minutes, and it seems like you're extremely lovable. <laughs> oh, I must say, thank you. <laughs> Why not be? That's you know, right. this this lifetime is so short. If I had to think about the the length of time that I've been working, uh, how many years that was, 
it seems like it was yesterday. Mm-hmm. So you should, life goes by so quickly. Enjoy yourself. Even if it means being a fool, that's okay. <laughs> wow. <It's> okay. <laughs> well, sometimes, you did. Sometimes it's necessary, I think, being a fool. It is because it helps take the edge off everything. Right. You know, mm-hmm. it's it, it can be really rough out there. So I, I believe in having a good laugh. <laughs> so do we. Um, well, you wrapped it days in 1982. What prompted your exit? Oh, it's a long story. Uh, it was time for me to go. Okay. It was time for me to go. And I got very, uh, very lucky that uh, Bill and Lee Bell asked me to come on Young and the Restless. That, um, wow, that was life-changing because I met my husband while I was there. Wow. Uh, uh, that was, um, and their kindness to me. Oh my God. Oh my God. It was, it was wonderful. Mm-hmm. Well, so you were, you know, not away from days for very long before uh, YNR came calling. Well, and- it seemed like a long time. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I think it was within the same calendar year. So uh, yeah. On paper, not so long. So uh, Gina arrived in Genoa City. And she very quickly connected with her brother, Danny, played by Michael Damien. So tell us about your relationship with Michael. Oh, my. Is Michael like the greatest guy in the whole library? Yes. His heart, he's got this heart of gold. I I just adore him. And I'm so happy for his success as a producer now. Right. He's done, I, I think he said like 25 films for Netflix. I mean, he did good. There you go. It's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. We hit it off immediately. I loved watching him sing in his concerts. We did a pretty good job on those concerts, you know, considering yeah. it was daytime TV and we had to rush through and everything. That was a lot of fun. That was a lot of fun. Right. Welding instructor Alex DeClaire knows VR training platforms like ForgeFX help students master their skills. There's a big learning curve with welding. Virtual reality simulates that exact muscle memory that they need. Learn more at meta.com slash metaverse impact. I normally find bras to be so uncomfortable and constricting, but Skims has changed that. You know I love Skims underwear, so I finally tried their bras, and Skims has delivered again. Skims bras are worth the hype for the amazing shape and support they give, but what I wasn't expecting was how comfortable they are too. I've tried so many bras in the past. And the main issue that I have is that they weren't supportive enough, to the point where they felt slouchy. I love my Skims wireless form bra because it's so comfortable and supportive. The older I get, the more I care about actually being comfortable in what I wear every day. And with my wireless form bra, I no longer have to sacrifice my comfort for the support I need. Shop Skims bras at skims.com, now available in 62 sizes, 30A to 46H. Plus, get free shipping on all orders over $75. If you haven't yet, be sure to let them know we sent you. After you place your order, select podcast in the survey and select our show in the drop-down menu that follows. Right. I mean, and something very different, you know, the concerts they had between, you know, uh, Michael, Tracy Bregman, Beth Maitland and you. I mean, those wasn't were like great? huge deals, like wasn't really done then. So, yeah. again, here we are, another opportunity where you're singing. So what was that like for you to, to have another job where your musical talent was incorporated? Well, I was always amazed that the opportunity even presented itself. It, it, it always seemed like I said, these doors just kept opening you know that's really a big key in life if you see a door opening walk through it 
the worst that can happen is that somebody will close it on the way out. Mm -hmm. Very true. All right. Yeah, so and especially in this lifetime. By the way, I want to know, you have to be the best researcher <laughs> I have ever encountered in my entire life. Oh, my gosh. How do you collect all this information? It's an occupational hazard, Patty. Uh, oh. I. I like to say I have the only job I'm qualified to do because this is all I know. This is all that's in this brain. Oh my <laughs> She's God. amazing. She is amazing. No wonder you guys make a great team. Thank you. Well, I want to hear about a door that opened for you, I think circa 1984, when you appeared in the iconic music video for Twisted Sisters, We're Not Gonna Take It. How did that door open? We were taping a show. And uh, one of the people upstairs said, such and such from Twisted Sister just called. They want you to do a video. Twisted Sister wants you to do a video for them. Now, quite honestly, I did not know who they were. <laughs> so once I saw them, I thought, oh, my God, these guys are so great. They're so bizarre. They had been fans of the show. And they thought I could play their mother in this a wild little, we're not going to take it anymore video. It is the most requested, number one requested video of all times. Did you know that? Did, well, Patty, well, did you know that no. this morning it had just on Twisted Sister's own YouTube channel over 67 million views? No, <laughs> no. True story. It is funny though. <laughs> <laughs> But there again, who would have thought that Twisted Sister would be watching um, a soap opera? Yeah, no, of course. That's that. Hey, it's a fun fact on a resume. I'll say that. <laughs> um, so when we moved into uh, this house here in Huntington Beach, my next door neighbors knew me from this uh, video. No way. Uh, have my, you been recognized from it otherwise? Oh, God. Yeah. My, um, my, uh, my boyfriend, isn't that odd to same boyfriend at 73. It seems so <laughs> bizarre. Um, his children knew me from that video. Oh my gosh. That's amazing. Yeah. I, I love that. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, what do you remember about filming the video? It was a long day. It was very hard. And I remember how really serious these guys were. They they had their port their money portfolios. They were going through investing their monies and everything. And I thought, isn't that odd for a rock and roll group to be so aware of how where they're going to invest their money and everything? I, I it was amazing to me. Yeah, you know. But that's what I remember that it seems so that juxtaposition of they were going they weren't going to end up broke. They were going to invest their monies. Now, back in the Genoa City universe, Gina's father, Brian Romilotti, a.k.a. Rex Sterling, was introduced in 1987, played by Quinn Redeker, who sadly passed away last year. So what stands out to you the most when you think about Quinn? Okay, this this was years and years and years ago before we had uh, terrorist attacks, right? Quinn was in a, a restaurant in the Valley. And I ran into him and we sat down and we were talking and, and I had said to Quinn, I said, what scares you the most? And he said to me, Patty, we don't have any idea how uh, terrorizing um, the threat of terror and terrorist is going to be to us. 
they are going to set loose on the United States something that's going to be hard to fight. He said this wow. long before 9-11, wow. oh all of that. He, you know, because he he was quite the writer and he was into researching all of that um, kind of political stuff. But he called this this terrorist thing long before it was um, something that they discussed on the news. Wow. That's yeah. appreciate to say the least. Yeah, he, he was very, uh, he was very heady, very deep. Uh, well, Rex's marriage to Catherine uh, made Ms. Jean Cooper, your fictional stepmother. Tell us about your relationship with her. She was the most outrageous, most iconic, singularly this powerful woman and also this gentle flower. Uh, we did a lot of touring on the road uh, with our nightclub acts, uh, Young and the Restless. We'd go out and we'd, we were in Nome, everywhere from Nome, Alaska, all the way down south. We, we would perform with several of the actors. And, you know, at one time, Jeannie was a heavy drinker. And uh, I remember this one um, job that we were doing. That's when Jeannie was drinking. I didn't want her to fail. <clears throat> so on the stage floor, I remember taking little cue cards and writing out the lyrics and taping them where they needed to be. And so the show started and, and then finally Jeannie, who's the star of the show, comes out. And this woman within three seconds snapped it together. Didn't matter that she was drunk. She wasn't when she was on stage. And that woman pulled it together. I couldn't believe what I was seeing. It was an amazing thing. But from that day on, we became so close. And when she finally conquered uh, the drinking problem, I don't know. I just, I fell in love with her. She really was, she was like a mother. She really was. She was a wonderful woman to me. Wonderful woman. That's lovely. Yeah. Um, now, over the years, Gina's had some pretty memorable rivalries, including the Gina Lauren rivalry and the Gina Phyllis rivalry. So tell us about working with both Tracy uh, and Michelle Stafford as Phyllis. You know what's great is when you have that kind of thing. So you do the scene and you're like, you're holding for the pause at the end of the scene. And then everybody breaks down in laughter. <laughs> and so we end up calling each other the bitch. Thank you. Thank you so much. I was, I was, I was the bitch today. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> A wonderful, wonderful experience. We laugh all the time about it. Well, another thing I should ask you is that the one of the main reasons for the friction between Gina and Lauren was that Gina had had a romance with Lauren's father, that Laura, uh, when Gina had had a romance with Lauren's father that Lauren sort of sabotaged so that the father I wasn't good him. enough. For, I well, wasn't that good was correct. Enough. And you know who the only person who was was Joanna Manning, played by Susan Seaforth Hayes. So, what was it like to get to with her? Know. I tell you, when Susan walked on the stage, it was it was kismet, <laughs> it was life, just this circle of life, you know. It was a beautiful, beautiful thing. And once again, even though we were bitchy to each other, we got to be bitchy and then we laughed about it. You know? <laughs> I love it. That's great. Um, wow. Now, Gina My was- My God, I've forgotten about that. 
I'm telling you, Mara's the best. <laughs> um, now, Gina was, of course, very famously the proprietor of the classic Genoa City eatery, Gina's, which was the very best Italian spot in town, which begs the question, are you a good cook, Patty? I will say this. Yes, I am. <laughs> and I'll tell you why. Uh, I was very, very poor growing up. Very poor. And there were many times when we didn't have money for food. So to this day, anytime I can take people out to dinner or fix a beautiful meal and serve it, I don't know. It makes me, it makes me feel great. So I learned how to cook. I learned how to feed people. You know, you can always tell what kind of a person, a person they are by watching them eat. You really can. Whether they're a, they love life, how you know, or whether they're very prim and proper when they eat. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. But cooking for me and feeding people became a very big thing because it was a way to give love. So in 2003, Gina's burned down. Kevin Fisher, we will never forgive you. Now, for a lot of viewers, that was very heartbreaking because it felt like the end of an era in a way because it was such a big part of the landscape of the town. Uh, for so long, you know, it was like such an endemic part of the show. Did you have any sentimentality or feelings related to it? You know what? I did. Mm -hmm. I had kind of like this little mini breakdown. You know, when you spend an entire day, 12 hours on a set every day, it becomes your home. And we had real fire going on and firemen there. You could smell the smoke. And I knew that it was the end was never going to be brought back. And there was like a, it was a hurt in my heart, so to speak. Yeah. Well, another beloved Young and the Restless legend who is no longer with us, but was an important figure in Gina's life for at least a time was Jerry Douglas's John Abbott. So what stands out to you about the late great Jerry Douglas? I, I love Jerry and I loved his wife, Kim. And, you know, uh, we used to do a, a nightclub act on the road and Jerry would take me, Laura Lee, sometimes Michael Damien, sometimes Nate. Um, Perdine. Oh yes. And he would be the comedian and we would go out. Laura Lee had two dancers with her and we would, oh my God, we did this show on the road. We, we were like in Port-au-Prince when they had, um, they were having a coup. When we arrived, I'll never forget this. Jerry goes, don't worry. I got this. I got it. We we look over and there were, there were people in with machine guns at the airport. Oh, my gosh. And Laura Lee and I looked at this, uh, Jerry, and said, Jerry, why are those guys uh, with machine guns? He goes, you worry too much. So, <laughs> so we were there during the coup. Wow, we were there. I I loved Jerry. Uh, I loved the way he loved Frank Sinatra music. Uh, he had whenever Jerry would tell a story, the story would go on for about oh at least a day and a half. <laughs> it never ended. He was he was really a wonderful character, wonderful wonderful kid. And his wife loved him. True yeah. and true is wonderful thing to see. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. 
Well, as you mentioned, your job on The Young and the Restless ended up being incredibly significant to you on a personal level because it brought your late husband, Jerry Byrne, into your life. And Jerry was not only a writer for The Young and the Restless, but he had actually been YNR creator William J. Bell's writing partner in the world of advertising long prior. So tell us a little bit about your love story. Oh, my God. What's there to tell? You know, when you meet someone and you know that they're going to be in your life, you just don't know how. Uh, it was meant to be. It was meant to be. We never talked about the show. The only time the show was ever mentioned is when Bill and Lee would come over to the house for dinner. And I think that that kept things pretty pure. Um, it, writers are very complicated people. They spend all their time, you know, in front of a, a little computer typing away. He lived his stories. Jerry loved writing for Young and the Rests. He loved the characters. Uh, after he passed away, he had kept every script he had ever written. Wow. And to see the stacks and stacks and stacks and stacks of scripts. But this was because he loved the show. He loved Bill. He loved creating stories. And he loved coming up with these absolutely ridiculous stories sometimes. <laughs> and having Bill say no. <laughs> 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 it was wonderful. He loved Kay all the he loved he loved the writing staff. He just loved the process of writing and creating. And I and once again, it became a very wonderful marriage. We loved each other. We were each other's best pal. We could make each other laugh. It was terrific. It was really he is missed. Oh, that's beautiful. I was single after he left uh this world. Uh it was really awful uh, for 10 years, never dated or anything. I couldn't I, because he, his presence was so with me. Um, he will be alive inside of me always, always. Of course. Yes, that's beautiful. That really is. Well, for the last decade or so, you discovered a new artistic gift, a new creative outlet, and that is as a painter. I've seen some of your work. It is beautiful. So tell us how you came to find out that you had this ability that you've never explored before. If I tell you, you have to promise not to think I'm a crazy person. That's all I'm saying. Promise. <laughs> I was in the depths of despair uh, and I fell asleep on the bed. And I heard this voice in my head saying, what are you going to do with your life? You can't sleep it away. The next morning I got up and it was as if I was in a trance. Now, honestly, I'm not, I'm not making this anything other than what really happened. I got up, I put some sweats on, grabbed the keys to my car, got in my car. I had no idea where I was going. And I ended up at an art store, Blick Art Store, across the street from the studio. And I just went through the store like a maniac, getting canvases and paint and everything. And I came home and I started painting. Wow. <laughs> it was as if my hand had a mind of its own. I just stood in front of the canvas and it did what it wanted to do. And I, I was, to this day, I'm always kind of like, how did this happen? I mean, I don't know how this ha painting happened. It just happened. I, it's stunning. It's yeah. It's, I, it's I can't stunning. believe it. Like that is amazing. I can't either. I'm not trained. I don't know anything. 
when I go to paint something, I don't even think about the color. I just reach and get colors and start and just paint. And I, I have to believe it's a gift. Yeah, it is for sure. It, it keeps me connected somehow to life. Yeah. Well, I have a question about your artistic process. If if you are guided and moved to just start and to start placing color on the canvas, how do you know when a piece is done? You just know. You just know. You know, people, I have a friend who's an artist and they just keep digging away at the piece, piece, because they keep trying to look for perfection. Nothing is perfect. Nothing. But if you get a sense when you look at something and it makes you feel something, it's done. As far as I'm concerned, it's done. That you have no training is just the is most astounding thing I've ever heard. None. I And to this day, I really don't know what I'm doing. I know nothing about color. I know nothing about form or anything. But I do know this. If you can stand with yourself quietly and trust it, something magical happens. And that goes with anything, with singing, with research, with interviewing, whatever. So if you just trust it. Mm -hmm. What's the worst that can happen? It won't work. Right. Now, you have been back to Genoa City, but tell us about getting the call to come back for the milestone 50th anniversary celebration that is coming up very soon. Oh, my God. Well, you know, I was afraid to do it because I got long covid and I lost my memory. Oh, wow. And I had no energy. Uh, I couldn't even drive. It was, you know, it was pretty scary. Yeah. And so when they asked me to come back, there was a part of me that was like, I don't know, man. I don't know if I can do it. Now, I had been getting better. I had long COVID for 18 months. So uh, wow. it was, the effects were wearing off. Mm -hmm. So that's, that was my only hesitation. Laura Lee had called and asked me. And, uh. You know, it, it was really, um, it was really a beautiful moment. Yeah. Because I thought, you know, it's, I'll never be back. Being able to see all the people that I worked with for all those years. Oh my God. It was beautiful. Uh, well, what did it mean to you to get the invitation and to know that like the impact that you made on the show was significant enough that they well, felt like we needed I, you there for the 50th? I know. I never thought it was that important, but uh, I, I, I guess it was. <laughs> and to be included in a 50 year celebration, 50 years. I mean, how many shows can say that they've been on the air for 50 years? So I, I feel like I, I'm, I am really a part of something. I was there for a lot of years. And I guess I was important enough to be asked back. So mm -hmm. that's great. Well, Patty, that's we got to say, not that many shows can say it, but you've been on two that can say it. I know. <laughs> so if you put them together 100 years, oh, Jesus <laughs> Christ. It's almost 108. <laughs> <laughs> And, you know, <laughs> now I know I look, I'm 108. Not yet. No, no. Um, so what was the experience of just even walking back into the studio and onto the set? Like, what did that feel like for you? Well, I was struck. I, I had to get to the studio really early because they were still testing for COVID. And uh, no one was at the studio when I arrived in the morning. 
And the minute the elevator door opened up to uh, where the studio was, I've spent 40 years of my life on a studio floor. It was really, um, I was struck by that, that I grew up in places like this. I grew up at Young and the Restless Studios, at Bill Bell's studio. It had changed my life. It had given me a life. It allowed me um, the freedom to be an actress, to be a singer, to be whatever. And here it was. Even if it was only for two days, I was walking back to something I had left 14 years ago. Yeah. It was very moving. Very, uh, I, oh, I'm such a sap. <laughs> that was my life. Right. It's amazingly full circle to be able to come back yeah. and I imagine see so many of the people who you had worked with. And I imagine you must have been flooded with memories since so much of your personal life was also tied into that yeah. professional experience. Yeah. It was amazing. Yeah. It was amazing to see all of the younger actors has gotten older and they have families now. Tracy Bregman's kids are grown up. Right. Oh my God. Like one of them, they're getting married. How did that happen? You knew her as a teenager. Yeah. I know. <laughs> it's all, you know, it's stuff like that. Wow. Um, life is beautiful. Even with all the crap. Yeah. It's beautiful. It is. That really is. Oh my goodness. Well, your uh, return is scheduled to air the last week of March. Stephanie and I will definitely be watching. And before we let you go, you know, is there anything that you would like to say to the fans listening who cheered the news of your return and are so looking forward to your visit? I want to thank everyone who watched the show, who kept the show on the air, who gave us the ratings to keep us number one for so long. It's because of the fans I was able to make a living, to take care of my family, to have a life. We are because of them. Mm -hmm. Thank you for still being there. Well, thank you, Patty. This has been such a delightful chat. I feel like you have so many amazing stories we could talk to you for the rest of the hour. I, I feel like I know you guys. I know, ditto. I feel yes. the same way. <laughs> You're very um, sweet. You're very, very sweet. Thank you. Thank, thank you. Thank you so much for making this pleasant. Of oh, course. I gotcha. Yeah, right. Exactly. <laughs> for knowing so much. <laughs> <laughs> we try to come prepared. <laughs> You are. Yeah. When we Thank do a part you, two, I, I want to hear more about uh, opening for Simon and Garfunkel. Yeah. Oh, okay. <laughs> and Crosby, Stills, and Nash. Yeah. Too. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Patty. Have a great day. We hope to talk to you soon. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you to Patty Weaver for being our guest. If you like this podcast, please subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. Be sure to pick up a new issue on sale now and come back next week for another podcast. <laughs>